This is Bustin' Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Kylie McDaniel, ESPN, is their minor league insider and prospect expert and guru. You saw him all over their draft coverage. He joins us now. Kylie, thanks for the time. How's it been? Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure. It's great to talk with you again. Look, it's not a victory or some kind of like party that we're throwing to be back in the top 10 because it took Juan Soto and Josh Bell, but it has been a long time since there was a reason for Nats fans to be excited about some of the young talent coming through the pipeline. You just give us an example of what the system was, say, two years ago before they sold off eight trades last deadline, and then now this year with with Soto and, and some of the strides that they've made. Yeah, I mean, it had been a bottom five system for a while because there, as you were sort of referencing, there had been a sort of steady flow of, well, at the deadline, they trade some mid-tier guys to beef up the team and get some short-term help. And then, um, you know, some of the really high-end prospects, like the, the approach that uh, Mike Rizzo takes is we're going we're gonna to shoot for the moon. We're going to draft the Cade Cavalli, the Brady House, you know, the guys that are at the top of the system right now. That includes Mason Denneberg and uh, includes Jackson Rutledge, some guys that haven't done quite as well or up to expectations maybe. Uh, but that also means that, um, you know, Juan Soto and, uh, you know, some of, the, some of the other guys that have reached the big leagues, obviously like Harper and Strasburg, those guys that are really outside that hit, they don't stay in the system very long. So it's basically the guys that are in the system are the ones that got drafted a year or two ago. Some of them are getting traded. And then the ones that have like stagnated and haven't gotten there and they're not adding, they're typically subtracting to help the team. And so in the last year, they've been adding to the system, subtracting from the big league team. And then also have, have been adding in the draft as well and internationally. And so now you've sort of added up where they're in accumulation mode. And it, once you do accumulation mode with the multiple big trades for a year or two, you pretty much end up in the top 10 one way or another. And they're there right now. And I would say the, the other thing to keep in mind is with Kyber Ruiz and Mackenzie Gore as recently graduated um, in the last month or two, uh, they would be second if both of those guys were eligible. But then also C.J. Abrams, who is on the list right now, if he plays two more games in the big leagues, he will not be eligible. That would then move them down to 16th. So there's that range from second to 16th. If you have three guys in the top, you know, fourth or top third of the top 100, it it moves you a ton based on the way I do the rankings, which is heavily weighted toward top half of the top 100 kind of talents, which is sort of, you know, it's empirically, it's based on evidence. But like, as, as I think your listeners would guess, those top end of the top 100 guys are extremely valuable. And they, they've had a number of those coming into the system of late. Yeah. So before I ask you about a bunch of these guys specifically, your system is super unique. It's kind of got a monetary value to it. Can you explain it a little bit? Because a lot of the other systems, you know, that are out there or just other sites ranking, you know, might have the Nats higher up or different than what you're going to have because you do it in a unique way that I enjoy. Yeah, so the idea is I have always been, and I've, you know, there's there's some some some, some scientific uh, studies based on this, uh, if you'd like to sort of dive down. But the idea of looking at the top 30 to 50 prospects for 30 different teams, you're considering over 1,000 data points and then say, oh, this one's 12th and this one's 13th, and I feel good about that. It's patently ridiculous that someone can do that, or a group of people can do that. That's just too many data points to consider. So you have to come up with some sort of uh, rubric or you know structure to give you an idea, maybe say this team's in the 10 to 15th area, I'm sure of that. They could be 10th or 15th. Maybe I can massage it a little bit. And what we came up with at Fangraphs uh, when I worked with Eric Longenhagen there 
There's a guy named Craig Edwards who now works for the MLB uh, Players Association. He went back and basically said, okay, if a guy is ranked here on a prospect list all the way down to the, you know, the 30th, 40th guy in the system, they will produce this much war, which is you know, sort of the best catch-all number, hitters, pitchers, fielders, everybody. It gives uh, a measure of what they'll do. And then we can go look at free agency and say, oh, one war costs anywhere from 8 to $10 million the last couple of years. So we can then say, you know, if this war is supposed to come five years from now or three years from now, taking just a couple of those variables. So how good are they going to be? How long will it take for it to happen? Um, and then how much is a win worth, which that's, you know, consistent throughout everybody um, that's currently in the minor leagues. Uh, you then can get a value on each player. And the value would essentially be if you were to, if the player, you know, was up for auction as a player, you would still be paying their salary throughout their six to seven years of player control. This number that teams would pay is how much they are worth above and beyond that player. So basically they're for, they're, those years of control were like, they can't hit free agency those six or seven years. How much would you pay to get access to those years? That's the number we're sort of spitting out. And so the average farm system is, you know, 215, 225 million, depending on what time of year you do it and things like that. And so Washington's at 268. Um, but it is, a, you know, it's only like 10, 15% more to be third um, in all of baseball. So they're 10th, but they're in an area where a lot of teams are bunched together. And so one or two additional trades, either ingoing or outgoing, can move teams a lot. Kylie McDaniel of ESPN. All right, so let's then dive into the system a little bit here. What did you make of the return in the Soto deal? I, I thought if there was a trade was done uh, at the deadline this year, knowing that A.J. Preller and San Diego Padres were involved in the bidding, and it sounds like, in retrospect, it was going to happen one way or another at this time, knowing they were involved, I thought they would get full value, and I think that's what they did. The buzz I'd heard going into this is that C.J. Abrams, the shortstop, second base, center field, maybe third base, you know, he fits somewhere around there. He was the guy that was now available that had not been available this entire time. Like San Diego obviously has traded a ton of players uh, to upgrade their big league team. He was in the group of three or four guys. Him and McKenzie Gore were both in that group for years, like maybe three years, um, where they were not available in any trade talks. Both of them sort of became available this year when they were hunting for that, you know, the big game of Juan Soto and Josh Bell as well. So it was thought that he would be on the table and then the guys that were recently uh, drafted in James Wood and uh, Yarlon Susana, um, that those guys would also be available. And the question was, what would be the other piece? Would there be another piece? Uh, would you need one? And Robert Hassel, the center fielder that was the first-round pick in 2020, he was thought to be the one that was off limits, the one that San Diego would hold on to. Uh, if you look at prospect lists, including mine, I, I think I still have Abrams a little ahead, but it's essentially a toss-up. They're you know, somewhere between 5th and 10th, somewhere around there on the top 100, and they had two of them. Um, and so the question was basically, do they keep Hassel back and then throw in a couple more players like Dylan Lesko and Jackson Merrill, two other uh, highly regarded prospects from the top couple rounds of the last few years of the draft, or Robbie Snelling, uh, Luis Campisano? There were three or four pieces left that you could include. The question was, does Hassel get included, or do you then grab a couple more of guys from that group? And Hassel got included. So I'd say kudos to Mike Rizzo, and I think also he had a very motivated bidder um, in A.J. Freller because the guy that everyone thought he was going to hold back, he ended up not holding back. He just sort of went um, uh, yo the YOLO GM for our times, as I called him on TV a couple <laughs> days ago. That's perfect. Yeah, I mean, Preller just he, – he's on team get bleep done. You know, you want him picking up that phone because he's going to work something out with you. He's like the uh, dude in every fantasy league you're in that's always trying to make yes. the, the, the deal at midnight every single night. Um, okay. Just constantly sending offers. Is very interested in everyone else's <laughs> right. players. Like exactly. At some level, doesn't seem interested in his own players because he's so interested in everyone else's players. All he cares about is the guys that are on your roster, no doubt. So I don't even know if this is instructive. And feel free to tell me you think this is a dumb question because it probably is. 
But if I was to compare what they got to some of like the rumored deals with the other teams, and, and this is why it's silly, is we don't know if these were actual offers that may have panned out. But I was thinking about like the Cardinals or the Dodgers. Those systems had guys further along, either in double and triple A, Jordan Walker's case. Uh, the, the Dodgers certainly with like your Pepios and your um, Vargas's, those types. This is a little bit more guesswork for a team that has struggled to to develop, right? I mean, it's a it's a ball. Robert Hassel, a plus. It's it's a ball. Loe, Fredericksburg, James Wood. It's not even that in in Yarlin Susana. What's your thought on that part of the fact that yeah, you got a ton, but there is a little bit more projecting and developing that still needs to be done with these guys. Well, I would say. I think LA, I don't think was actually a bitter that like that move does not sort of jive uh, with what they've been doing the last few years. And I think they probably uh, entered into the bidding uh, per reports late because they wanted to run the price up on AJ Preller thinking there, there was a team that had more trade ammunition than they did oh, that was interested. So like I needed to bid aggressively to make sure they didn't beat me. I think St. Louis is the other one that was a threat and I'm not sure they would have lined up the top of their system. Jordan Walker, Mason, Wynn. Libertor, Zach Thompson, Gordon Graceffo, Alec Burleson. These were kind of the names that were mentioned. Tink Hentz, uh, Josh Baez. Like that, that's their group of six or eight guys. And you could argue that Walker, Mason, Wynn, those two guys are both in the top 25 or 30 in all of baseball. Walker in the top 10. Those two are comparable pieces to Abrams and Hassel. And they could have lined up something that was pretty comparable. And as you're saying, these guys are generally in double A, triple A. They're a little further along. I don't think they would have offered sort of equal value to what San Diego did because I think San Diego was so motivated to do it. And I would also say, again, going back to Mike Rizzo's uh, general approach to how he wants to build a system, like the last three drafts, it has been uh, Elijah Green, the riskiest player in the top 10 picks, maybe in the entire draft um, in terms of you know upside versus what it could be. Brady House, probably the riskiest guy in last year's draft was who he took in the first round. Um, Jackson Rutledge, Kate Kowali, they are all on the extreme end of the risk-reward um, ledger. And so getting uh, Hassel, who's still an A-ball, but is like a, a relatively like high-floor player. He's like a hit-first guy that doesn't have bananas tools. Abrams is near the big leagues, but comes with like a pretty wide gap between what he is right now and what he could be. Um, and then James Wood and Susana. James Wood was a second-round pick last year. He was taking like 50 picks behind Brady House, and I think he's almost as good now. Like he has dramatically improved. Uh, and Susana is like the definition of far from the big leagues, high risk, high reward. It's a 6'6", 235 righty up to 101 that doesn't really know where the ball's going yet. Uh, that's in rookie ball. And he's got the components. Like he has been walking tons of guys, but it's still pretty early. Um, so I, th- I think, you know, Hassel is a low risk player. Abrams is essentially big league ready in one way or another. So I don't think the, uh, the profile of this hall was wildly different than St. Louis's offer, whatever it was. I don't think St. Louis would have offered as much as San Diego did, though. Makes sense. Uh, you can read Kylie McDaniel's work at ESPN. You mentioned Hassel here. We could start with him in terms of just a quick breakdowns on some of these guys and, and some thoughts on timelines. He's in A+, plus, but you know they could have. He, he was performing really well at A+. Plus. They, they could have him in the year if they wanted to at double-A. I mean, how far off do you think he is, and what kind of big leaguer ultimately do you think he'll be? So he was a guy that I have a ton of history with. I'm in Atlanta, uh, and he was in East, East Tennessee. 
uh, and he would he was going to these sort of national showcase events a year before uh, everybody goes. So I I remember seeing him after his sophomore year of high school and thinking, oh, this guy kind of looks like Nick Markakis. He's a really good hitter with like sort of tweener skills, but he was like 16 years old. So it's like obviously you know guys get bigger and stronger and faster. And then the next year he showed up was bigger, stronger, and faster as a 17 year old. And it was like, oh, this guy he's a dude. He's going to play center field. He's got enough power for average raw power. He can run and play center field, but he's not an amazing athlete. He's enough of an athlete to play center field, and he can really, really hit and has been identified as a guy that's one of the best hitters in his class and sort of grew into the raw tools but was, has always been a hit-first guy. And that's largely been uh, what it's, what's been like in pro ball where this guy's going to hit 270, 280. He's going to draw some walks. He's not going to strike out that much. And the question is, is the power going to be 12 to 15 homers? Is it going to be 15 to 20? Is he one of those guys that has average raw power and figures out a way to hit 25 in the big leagues? Is it possible that he beefs up, hits 25 homers, and then ends up playing right field instead of center field? Like, that's sort of the question is, he's going to hit, he's going to be at least a low-end everyday player. He is, like, almost assured of being an everyday player, which is why I'm saying he's a, he's a high-floor player for an A-ball player. You don't say that about many players that are in A-ball right now. The question is, how much impact will it be and what exactly will it look like? Because he's still sort of tapping in uh, to the power, but the the approach and the hit are among the best in the minor leagues. So then do you consider him, everyone ranks him, it seems like, higher than James Wood, even though Wood has a much higher ceiling, in my opinion. Like he could, If one of those guys becomes an MVP, it's more likely that it's James Wood, but yet he doesn't have the floor that Hassel has. And, and this, I guess, goes to just your basic development and prospect rankings debates in general, but how do you juxtapose those guys with, with Wood being 19, 6'7", 240, and having made major swing adjustments? Yeah, Wood, Wood is yeah the definition of this could be almost anything. Uh, like I said, he, after, after uh, last summer, the same summer um, events where Hassel went and looked like a you know high top half of the first rounder, essentially, uh, James Wood looked like a middle of the first rounder. When the spring started, I think I ranked him 15th on my draft rankings. He had a terrible spring playing at IMG Academy where they're basically facing like low-end college pitching, but high school kids go there. And there was something about it. Was it his swing? Was it his approach? Was he trying to go opposite way? You just couldn't quite figure it out. But for reference, when he was mashing over the summer, he kind of looked like Kyle Tucker. It was like tall and lanky, no batting gloves, really loose swing. And when he'd tap into his power, it would be like jaw-dropping stuff. Like this guy might hit 40 home runs one day if it all comes together. Because again, he's 6'7", 240. He's so big. He could continue getting bigger. And he's a plus runner uh, at that point i think he's probably closer to about a 55 runner now but like this guy is, is extremely athletic even for being that size and when you make a list of guys that have potential 40 home run power maybe realistically 30 that are six seven and are great athletes like it's a list of two or three players and it's like aaron judge like it's a pretty short list uh o'neill cruz guys like that um and so once he got into pro ball uh he slipped to the 62nd overall pick for an overslot bonus to san diego because they believe, like, oh, this guy is more what he was in the summer, not what he was in the spring. And he just immediately was the best version of himself. He had never been this good before and has been terrorizing the minor leagues while also, you know, striking out a good bit. And then he came out this spring and was walking almost as much as he was striking out and hitting a ton of home runs and showing the raw power and is, like, taking it up in even another gear. So now the question is, okay, is he on the trajectory that he is going to be some version of O'Neill Cruz, Aaron Judge, like that kind of just physical monster with huge tools that cannot be denied? Or is he good in A-ball and once he's 6'7 and starts seeing 95 on the black and then a plus slider off the plate in AAA, does this back up a little bit and he turns into more of a, you know, a little bit of swing and miss, but he's got some power. Uh, we'll see what it is. It's just the reason he's behind Hassel is it's a little bit new. He's giving you good and bad looks. And he's like 50 games into looking like a totally different guy. 
And that, again, sounds like the risk-reward profile that Mike Rizzo is looking for, whereas Hassel, since he was like 16, you're like, oh, this guy's going to make the big leagues. He's going to hit. And James Wood, like, there's, there's versions of this guy that, like, either don't make the big leagues or get called up because he was in a big trade, but he maybe doesn't deserve to be in the big leagues. Like, that's still on the table for him, and that's not really on the table for Hassel and obviously is not on the table for Abrams. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And By the way, uh, just for Nats fans that haven't tracked it closely – I mean, James Wood already had a four for five with a homer and a steal in, in a game at Fredericksburg. So right away, you've kind of seen the skill set on display in, in his low A play. Uh, real, uh, another one on Abrams real quick then would be, I don't know that I've ever seen a guy play so little in the minor leagues who's already played as much as he has in the big leagues. And I know the 2020 pandemic's a big reason why, but he's only 21. I mean, if he hadn't played in the show yet, I just feel like people would like him a lot more than they do publicly. People look at his batting average or something in the majors. He's 21. He's got like 100 minor league games to his name. It seems like the the love for him has cooled a little bit, maybe unfairly. Yeah, he's interesting to me. He's another guy. I mean, he's in Atlanta, and I'm in Atlanta. So I saw him as like a freshman, sophomore in high school. Uh, and to me, when he was at his best, he kind of looked like Kenny Lofton. It's like lanky 6162 will continue to fill out, is extremely athletic, uh, is twitchy, and then his senior year going in uh, to high school, his draft year, he started hitting the ball over the scoreboard at his field, which is like a normal size field. And I remember I went to go see him, and it was A.J. Preller, Logan White, like the four or five dudes that make the decisions <laughs> for the Padres yeah. were all sitting there, and they kind of looked at me like, you're going to tweet that we're at this game, aren't you? Like everyone knew they were going <laughs> to draft him if he got to their pick, uh, and they did. Um, so the, the question with him was, at that point, he is a 70 or 80 grade runner, 80 being the fastest you can be in the big league. So like game-changing speed. He does not look the smoothest at shortstop. He's not the most fluid guy when it comes to just how his hands and feet um, organize themselves. But in terms of athleticism, he has the raw tools to do it. But we're now three or four years into he doesn't quite look the part at second or at short. And so the question is, well, do you put him at third where it's like a slightly different set of actions that might fit him a little bit better? Do you put him at second so everything's just a little bit shorter again in actions or do you stick him in center field and let him run around um and that may fit him the best because he's a little more of a closing speed long speed think of him as like a lanky like outside receiver in football he's like that kind of athlete um i don't think that's been decided yet i think he's fine at all of those places i think you should probably think of him as like you know the best versions of uh, bj melvin upton where it's like oh he can play anywhere ben's obris like he can play anywhere it's not that he's a utility guy it's that he plays a lot of positions and is always in the lineup that he's that kind of guy the the limitation, though, is that because I think San Diego believed so much in him, he missed the 2020 season after he signed because of the pandemic. He then had some injuries. There's not a ton of reps, and they rushed him. And so at the age that a lot of guys are, you know, juniors in college getting ready to go in the draft, he's in double-A, triple-A. Um, and so because the one limitation on his game is that he swings a little too much, so as pitching gets better, is he so gifted at making contact? Again, imagine Kenny Lofton. That guy can make contact with anything. If he's swinging at a bunch of pitches off the plate or swinging early in the count, is he going to get to all those tools? Is he going to get to, again, like Hassel, 12, 15 homers? Is he going to get to 20, 25 homers? All of that's still on the table. And he also could steal 40 bases if you're the kind of team that lets him steal bases. So that's why he's ranked so high. And I think part of the, uh, not souring, but like people being a little bit lower on him is because they rushed him so much and because his general skill set will be tested at the upper minors more than the Robert Hassel skill set, which I think also could be something that happens to James Wood. Um, it's the, the star is dimmed a bit. 
And there's a chance that if we're looking at the very low end, he could be a Jerickson Profar kind of player who was also one of the top two prospects in baseball when he got there with all the tools in the world, all the performance in the world, and it's just sort of been okay. Like that's kind of a worst-case scenario for him is a good low-end player that's like a little frustrating because he never quite gets to what he could be. He also could be a perennial all-star. And that's as a guy that's in the big or could be in the big leagues right now, has been in the big leagues, that's still on the table. That's more the profile of a guy in a ball like James Wood, basically. All right, last one for you. Are you surprised we haven't seen Cade Cavalli in the big leagues yet? He's closing in on almost 30 starts in AAA. Yeah, a little a little surprised. Uh, he is another guy that, again, when we go back to the, the Mike Rizzo focus of I want high upside, I want uh, I want high risk, I want to get the most upside I can find. Uh, he Cavalli was a little bit of a late bloomer. Uh, I know we drafted him uh, uh, out of high school when I was with the Braves. He wasn't really signable then. He didn't pitch that much until his draft year, uh, which was the 2020 pandemic year, so obviously he didn't pitch a ton. It was more based on summer team USA stuff. So he came in as a big athletic upside guy that out of college still hadn't pitched that much because he was a little more of a first baseman, actually, um, in college. And uh, I would say the Nats pitching development doesn't have the greatest reputation in baseball for being at the Yankees, Guardians, Dodgers level. They're like a little behind that. Um, And so I think the thought around the industry is, well, he still needs to – fine-tune, and you need to put him at the upper levels where his raw talent will actually be tested by hitters that are not overwhelmed by the raw stuff. You need to put him up in AAA, which is what happened. I mean, he's now he's started 24 games in AAA. Uh, you need to put him up there to face guys that are close to big league level, and then once he's not getting challenged there anymore, then throw him in the big leagues. And so I think he's still at the point where he's still working on some stuff and still harnessing things, still doing the, you know, the pitch design, the, the real advanced stuff you have to do to get big league hitters out and trying to simulate that as best you can in AAA. But I would imagine at some point this year, at the very beginning of next year, I think he's, I think he's pretty close to being ready. That or I'll just keep watching Anibal Sanchez and Paolo Espino at the big league level for a little while longer. I, I hope it's not a service time related thing, but he is the sort of player that maybe could use a little extra seasoning, even if it seems like he's succeeding in AAA. Yeah. Whereas there are other kinds of guys like Mackenzie Gore. Mackenzie Gore doesn't need to send AAA. Like he can put him in the big leagues. Let him figure it out. Yeah, totally, totally with you. Hey, this has been great. A lot of wonderful information for our listeners who are now deep diving in, into some of these guys because that's kind of what matters for the Nationals. Really appreciate it, Kylie. Yep, thanks for having me.